0: Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Sir, distribution him o little flock fear not the foe who madly seeks your overthrow. Dread not his rage and power, and though your courage sometimes faints, his seeming triumph over God's saints lasts but a little hour. Be of good cheer. Your cause belongs to him who can avenge your wrongs. Leave it to him, our Lord. Though hidden yet from mortal eyes, his Gideon shall for you arise, uphold you and his word. As true as God's own word is true, not earth nor hell's satanic crew against us shall prevail. There might a joke, a mere facade. God is with us and we with God. Our victory cannot fail. Amen, Lord Jesus, grant our prayer. Great captain, now thine arm make bare. Fight for us once again so shall thy saints and martyrs raise, a mighty chorus to thy praise forevermore, amen. So that, that hymn is actually, if, you, if you'll notice in the, in the hymnal, it's, uh, it's numbered hymn number 666, the, often associated with the devil, the mark of the beast and all that stuff. Um, and this, so this is very intentional, that the, the guys who put the hymnal together really set up to make sure that the, the section um, regarding the, the devil being overcome was fall over the 600s and specifically 666. And a lot of it was just the timing worked out well. They were able to place it right over there. So I mean think about it, the, the, the title, O Little Flock, Fear Not the Foe. So this number that, that's associated with the devil causes us no, uh, no concern. Tremendous hymn. You can find an a, a excellent arrangement actually on YouTube of like kids singing it. I mean, to hear little kids' voices singing a you know, little flock is, is tremendous. That's actually one of the hymns we're, we're playing to keep, teach the kids this summer at VBS. So we'll, hopefully by um, the Sunday after Vacation Bible School, we'll have them sing it for, the, the worship, for worship on that Sunday. A couple quick announcements. Again, Dave Bodenstab's funeral is, is uh, this Tuesday, uh, visitation at 9.30 here, and then 10.30 funeral followed by luncheon. After Bible study today, in case I forget, please leave the tables and chairs out. We're going to be using it all uh, for the luncheon on Tuesday. Um, anything else for that? Yeah, stick around. I mean, we're, we have, we're going to have plenty of food, so stick around for that luncheon if, you're, if, you, if you can. A uh, number of announcements. Geranium sign up for Pentecost. If you'd like to grab a geranium to, to decorate the sanctuary, the deadline is next Sunday. You can email the church office for that. Uh, still looking for folks to sign up for the adopting a plot throughout the throughout the campus here for weeding and pruning and cleaning uh, their their area. So you can get more information in the week at a glance. Also, there's a map at the welcome center for the different plot layouts. Still looking for mowers for uh, cutting the grass this summer. Um, we had great news that the school's accreditation went through this past, this past Tuesday. We found out we had a tr- an excellent score, like 2.8, uh, 2.85 out of 3, basically, so really uh, excellent. So thanks to Erin and her and her staff and the day school policy board putting that together. <laughs> So So there's a distinction between accreditation and the recognition. You remember when we made the national news for getting our state recognition pulled because we we didn't want to comply with the government's mandate regarding masks and the state said, well, if you're not gonna play by our rules, we're not gonna recognize you as a school. We said, who cares? We can still have school, it doesn't matter. Um, So the recognition is different. So that's simply the state saying, we recognize you as a school and therefore you can receive government funds which we receive like essentially none of. We get we get milk at very very minimal cost. We get we get milk is subsidized, but no other funds are coming from the government. So it was a it was a toothless threat for us. They ended up giving it back to us anyway. Uh, but accreditation is them looking at looking through our curriculum, making sure we're up to snuff. Uh, they, they, and also sent us a Lutheran accredita- accreditation agency. They wanted to make sure we were like um, actually distinctively Lutheran. Um, again, high standards for education, making sure there's good communication, all these different things. Uh, facility uh, up to snuff. Also identifying areas for improvement and making suggestions. So we'll have that and we'll be uh, taking action on that in the coming in the coming weeks. Uh, Matt Carlson, former member Matt Carlson, who's currently serving a vicarage in California, received his call last Tuesday to Joliet. So he's right here. Because so few people are willing to consider going to Illinois. I'm sure he was one of them. So they're like, all right. So I forget the name of the congregation. There's two. One is where Pastor Hess had been. It's not the one that Hess was. There's a different, so it's a different church. But our Savior, yes. So our Savior in, in Joliet is where he is. Um, so lastly, today's Good Shepherd Sunday. So before um, before I forget, this will be the last Sunday that I'm teaching adult Bible class until probably the fall. So I'm going to take a vacation the next two Sundays, and then Pastor Schumacher will be teaching next Sunday. It's Confirmation Sunday. So Pastor Barton's will be wrangling the confirmands. Uh, Pastor Schumacher will be teaching in here. And then we're going to pass the baton to Pastor Barton's for the summer to give him a crack at teaching, uh, teaching adults for a while. So be as hard on him as you possibly can, because otherwise he's not going to learn, right? Uh, no, so it'll be a great... I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's energizing and fun to teach youth. But, in, but remember, often cases, the youth don't always want to be there. So they're often there because, so you're spending a lot of time trying to motivate them and trying to inspire them to learn and so forth. Whereas you guys, generally, uh, hopefully, you're, you're choosing to be here. You're desiring to learn. So it's fun. It's, it's really, it's fun to teach. So it's good to give him that opportunity. And that's going to go through the summer, which means we either finish all of Luke today, which is slightly unrealistic. Uh, we'll probably just resume uh, hopefully jump into chapter 21 uh, in the fall. So uh, we'll look forward to that. Um, maybe one last thing. We, we, will, we do look forward to a Church Family Sunday coming up at the end of May, Memorial Day weekend. That Sunday, happens to also be Pentecost Sunday. We are historically very, very low on Memorial Day weekend, a lot of traveling going on. So um, we thought, hey, since we have one, instead of having two small crowds, let's put them together and have one relatively large one. So you'll be hearing more about that in the week at a glance in the coming weeks, but that's at the end of May. All right, today, Good Shepherd Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Easter is always always Good Shepherd Sunday. And there's a variety of different texts uh, from John 10, specifically, that talk about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. There's a, there's a lot of imagery. And I had a, one of our new members actually ask me a great question yesterday about the, um, the sheep imagery in the church. So first of all, it's interesting. Jesus is in the scriptures described as a shepherd, but he's also the lamb of God who takes away the sin. So we get like this... It's kind of, it can potentially be confusing. So we're, when we're, p- we're picking the theme for Vacation Bible School, we thought oh, we have so much imagery to work from between Jesus as sheep and Jesus as shepherd, but when you thought, trying to teach that to kids, it can be confusing. So which, which are we talking about here? Jesus is the shepherd or the sheep or which, am I, am I Jesus little lamb or is he the lamb of God who takes away sin? It can be confusing. So um, we're gonna focus just on, I am Jesus little lamb, Jesus as the shepherd, our good shepherd. And what makes him good is him laying down his life for the sheep. And, and the nature of us being sheep and, and us being loved and cared for by him. That'll be the theme for v, VBS. The question from one of our new members was, was um, an excellent one. If you'll notice, yeah, I was looking around the, the sanctuary during church, which, you know, I, I told him, what that means is you're not, you weren't listening to my sermon? No. Uh, so he's, he's noticing all the, the imagery in the, in the sanctuary of lambs that are bleeding, not, not bleating, <laughs> but bleeding. And was uh, like, what's... He said, this is a quote, direct quote. What's up with that? <laughs> Which is a great opportunity to be able to talk about it. So to, going back all the way to... So just to make sure you guys are may refreshed on this and may able to answer the question as well. Um, starting at the beginning of the fall into sin, we have Adam and Eve covering up their sin and shame by their own work with their fig leaves. And then Jesus, or, or so God comes to them in the garden and says, that's not good enough. And he goes and he kills an animal and he covers them with animal skins. Now, it wasn't just a matter of like warmth or something, um, practicality or, 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 or something like that, but rather, remember the relationship that Adam and Eve would have had with those animals. He named them, there was no animosity between them. So it's very much like a Dr. Doolittle-esque animals, like, or like, is it Snow White? Which, Cinderella, which, which princess is like singing in animals or like helping her clean the house? Snow, Snow White. So you get very much a, an idea of that, this healthy relationship between the animals and the humans. And then um, after the fall into sin, this, this clear animal skin that Adam and Eve would have known because maybe they cuddled up with him at night for warmth. And then now it's actually handed to them on a coat hanger. And they're like, where's the, where's the rest of him? Um, which brought this, think of that pain of death. We experience it when we, lose, when we lose animals, certainly not nearly when we lose loved ones, but that's the, the pain of, of death entering because of sin. Our sin actually costs something. And that's with all the Old Testament sacrifices from the very first sacrifice, to then clothe Adam and Eve with the, with the animal skins, all pointing toward the sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb who would take away sins. So we have the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointing toward the coming sacrifice of Jesus, but also, oh, maybe most, most importantly, the, the Passover lamb itself. When Egypt uh, has, when, when Israel is in slavery in Egypt, remember the plagues, and Pharaoh keeps saying, no, we're not gonna let your people go until finally the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, except for Israel, because they would slaughter the lamb without blemish and, and put the blood on the doorpost. And then the angel of death would, Pass over, right? So the idea of the lamb being this exodus from, because of the death of that lamb, we have exodus from slavery to bondage in Egypt. So the the symbolism there, the the slavery to sin, shame and guilt. Uh, Also death itself, passing over because of the death of that lamb on behalf of God's people. So much rich imagery there. And so then we fast forward to the New Testament when John the Baptist, after, after Jesus' baptism, points at Jesus and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he is the lamb, uh, but, but he's not a lamb just because he's cute and cuddly. I mean, specifically, it's not, he doesn't want to be known as a lamb for, because he's got long hair and, uh, whatever whatever you, uh, lamb would be known for. Specifically, uh, the lamb imagery is only tied to Jesus insofar as it is di- shedding its blood. And that's why when the lamb is pictured in the scriptures, it's either bleeding or next to a shepherd. So it's either talking about us as his sheep and he is our shepherd, or if it's talking about him, he's bleeding. So even in Revelation, it's uh, so John talks about seeing the lamb on his throne. It's living and reigning, although it was slain. So it had been slain. So you got this living lamb, but it's got, it's got like this blood all over its neck or something like that. So that's why the imagery, like if you look at our, the altar, uh, it's also on the pulpit. It's on the pastor's stalls in the Easter season. It's on the big white banners. They have a lamb looking back to the Old Testament and looking forward to the return of Christ. Um, both of them have lamb, blood coming out of the neck. Most famously, perhaps, the, the the awesome imagery we used to have in the youth room um, with like a really awesome, gory lamb and the blood was flying out of the jugular. But for a while there, I remember we had the preschool family singing uh, in there with their children. And it turned out that was kind of jarring for the two-year-olds <laughs> to see. So uh, that artwork... Uh, made it out of, out of the youth room. But, but anyway, so that's the imagery there. So I wanted to just make sure we, that was clear and just to reflect upon that, the significance. Because it can be confusing. Because of, oh, there's shepherds, but and is he a shepherd or is he a sheep? Which is it? Yes, he's both. Um, he's the shepherd who dies for the sheep, but he's also the, the lamb who takes away sin. Any any questions or comments on good shepherd? I just wanted to, to kind of glimpse across that. All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Last week, we, we introduced chapter 20 and got up to the parable of the wicked tenants. So just remember the, in the context of Jesus talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests were all there uh, claim, asking him, by what authority are you doing? Are you teaching all these things and doing all this stuff? And Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He gives them a question. By whose authority did John the Baptist do what he was doing? Is was his baptism from, from heaven or from man. They didn't know how to answer the question because they didn't want to upset the crowds. Um, so they just said, well, I'm not gonna tell you. And so Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But then verse nine, where we're gonna pick up today. And he began to tell the people this parable. So he does, he's gonna answer the question in this, interweaved in the middle of this parable. So he's answering the question in his own way. With the parable of the wicked tenants. But that, remember the context, we're there in the temple, he's teaching, he's being questioned regarding his authority. It's in Holy Week. So this is like Monday or Tuesday of Holy Week. So he's gonna be dying later that week. Verse nine, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone it will crush him. So that's the parable of the wicked tenants. And a quick word about parables on your handout there, as you got the imagery of the guy hiding behind the, vine, the vines with his knife, waiting to kill the son. So parables are not to be heard merely as fables. So, so we, kids I think can associate them with one another. We, we would maybe naturally do that as well. When we're teaching fables, fables teach moral lessons by which you can improve yourself. That's why Aesop's fables, that's why you tell your kids about the boy who cried wolf, because you're trying to teach a lesson by which the the kid can reform their behavior in some positive way that benefits the child in the long run. But such a hearing, that is to hear the parable by way of law, which we already have in Moses. So we have to distinguish our hearing parables from the fables or those moral like fairy tales where fairy tales are trying to get us to fix ourselves in some way that would be, you can, you can uh, and really naturally the first reading of most parables is to hear them in such a way where it's got some kind of a moral truth for us to learn from. But when you do that, if you're taking, if you're taking the parable and saying, okay, how can I apply this to myself? Like I do the boy who cried wolf, then we're only hearing the parable by way of law which we already had before Jesus. So the people of Israel already knew they're supposed to be loving their neighbor and themselves and, lo- and loving, loving God. So if we're only walking away with a, here's how you can fix your self interpretation of a parable, then we're actually doing it wrong or do- at least doing it incompletely. So Jesus, especially in the week of Holy Week, if, if we could fix ourselves by, by way of the law, we, he wouldn't need to do what he does at the end of Holy Week. Jesus preaches parables to give gospel, to forgive sins, and cleanse sinners. So everything is pushing toward the cross. So yeah, keep that in the back of our minds. So before we start breaking it down, let's just reflect. What are some of the irrational and insane behaviors in the parable? Send so your son after he's killed two people already. <laughs> so send the son. Yeah, that really—that's a clear one. Yeah. So he's already killed two people already, and now we're going to send a son, Tom. exact, like what kind of insane, you, you see the insanity of sin, how sin can, can arrive at such like irrational conclusions that by, like think about by this, in our own sinful behaviors, by this sin, I will attain happiness. When really we know that we won't. And yet that's the allure of sin, this insanity that breaks in. Yeah, those are the big ones. The, I guess my, that might be it. There's the two that I had in mind. Any, anything I'm overlooking? Yeah. All right. Let's look at it. when the harvest came. The time the time came for the fruit. He sent a servant to the tenants. So, um, so what's the tenant? What are the tenants doing? What is a what is a tenant in this context? Matthew's gospel uses a different word. He he actually says in the same parable he calls them vine dressers. So what are the tenants supposed to be taken care of? Supposed to be tending the vineyard, ultimately. I mean, they, maybe they're renting from him in some way, but ultimately they're, they're supposed to be taking care of the vineyard on behalf of the vineyard owner, uh, pruning the vines, t- taking out the grapes, and ultimately sending, the, sending a, sh- a share of the fruit to the vineyard owner. Keep that in the back of your mind. It's gonna come back. Uh, he sent the servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed." So what's some of the, what's the the analogy, what's this analogous to in the history of Israel? The prophets who are sent to Israel, and what do the people do? Quite literally, beat them and kill them. And he sent another servant, which again with the prophets. They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent, still a third. This one they wounded and cast out. So then the owner says, what shall I do? And this is the most insane. I will send my beloved son? So there we see, though, I mean, so think in the context of the first first servants that are sent, being analogous to the prophets, leading up to the son. Now, when Jesus is telling this parable, going back to like number three on my handout here, How does verse 13 answer the Pharisees' question regarding the authority of Jesus? By whose authority do you do this? Now he's got his answer to the parable. He's got his answer to the scribes within the parable. He's calling himself the the son who sent into the vineyard and ultimately is killed. Uh, Let's see. This is the heir, let us kill him. The insanity of sin that the inheritance may be ours. Well, who, who gets the inheritance of anything? Who are heirs? The children. It's not the people who do the actual murdering or killing. Like, that's, that's absolutely insane. It doesn't hold any, any water. They threw him out and killed him. And what is the owner going to do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. They said, surely not. And then Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So I argue on two letter A, the parable isn't showing us how to have a successful vineyard because I think if, he, if Jesus is trying to teach us how to be successful vineyard owners, like what do we learn from the vineyard owner? Is he, is he acting in any way logically for having a good vineyard? Sending his servants who just keep getting killed and then finally sending his son? No. It seems that the vineyard owner doesn't care about the vineyard itself. So he's not interested in actually getting fruit. What's he after? The tenants paying their share. The tenants. Not just the the tenants paying them their share, especially knowing the context of the scribes being the hearers of this, he actually wants the tenants themselves. He wants he wants the heart of the vine dressers. He's after them. So he's using, the, he's using the vineyard as a means to the end of getting the vine dressers versus using the vine dressers to take care of his vineyard to give him fruit. See the difference? So he's actually, he's using this vineyard to, to, to get the heart of his people. And so that makes sense even more when we know Jesus is talking to the scribes. And if the scribes were a lost cause, he wouldn't bother what? even talking to them at all. But in giving them this parable, what's he doing? What gift is he giving them? He's, he's giving them repentance, ultimately toward the gospel. So he, he hits them hard with the law. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How is, how is Jesus, number four in your handout, how is Jesus the stone that the builders rejected in his time and in ours? So we'll think, what's, why would a cornerstone be rejected at all? Why is, why is, what's the quality necessary regarding building a building? Being solid. Because why? Because whole structure. The entire structure will, exact. So as you're, as you're kind of, you got a pile of rocks and you're, and you're digging through the rocks to try to find a good one that's gonna be supportive and really indicative of the entire structure that follows. So for the stone to be rejected, how would you describe that stone? It's gonna, what? Well, that's, how, that's the mechanism by which you would judge it, for sure, but what, like if you were just describing it to someone, what would it look like? Maybe smaller? What else, weaker, what else? Flawed, defective, exactly. And that's my question here, on, uh, on A, how does this picture miss the point? So I Googled the stone the builder rejected. I was looking for pictures of stones so I could teach a particular point. I wanted a picture of a broken, chipped stone that was, clear, like it was like rejected for a clear reason. And the only picture I kept finding was this really nice, pristine, perfectly edged cornerstone. What's the problem? That's the one that would, exactly. That would have been selected. So Jesus is not this stone. That's the stone that maybe the Mormons would want because that looks like that would be part of a Mormon building or something like that you ever noticed how clean the Mormon, everything's so pristine and white and perfect and very unhuman. Um, but so that Jesus is the stone that is rejected, he comes by way of weakness and he saves by way of brokenness. He's the opposite of earthly power and strength and might. Now he's, he, he certainly is perfect according to the law in one way, But also he's broken in the sense that he's taken all of our sin upon him. So according to the law, he's perfect, but he is is the stone that the builders rejected because the builders are looking for a particular kind of thing and Jesus isn't it. He doesn't have the the strength of this power Messiah that that they're hoping for. So I, I, I think a better picture would be like a broken, some kind of a broken stone or something. So Jesus is rejected in his time and ours. So why was Jesus rejected at his time? There's a multitude of answers we could give. What are some examples? Why is Jesus rejected at his time? So he wasn't the Messiah they were wanting. So what what was the Messiah they wanted? So he wanted uh, some kind of military, some military leader to bring a rebellion. So he's rejected insofar as he's Messiah. Why else is he rejected though? Not just as Messiah, he's also rejected as a teacher. He wasn't law-focused. He law he's going around forgiving sins, which delegitimizes the entire system of the time. So, he, so he's walking in. Instead of focusing on how you can fix yourself, he's not interested in that. He's interested on in doing the fixing and forgiving sins. Totally different, totally different approach. Now, obviously, Jesus, if you were to talk to him, say, Jesus, is sin bad? He would say, well, yeah. Uh, so he said, "So uh, it seems like, Jesus, you're soft on sin. You're going around forgiving it, seem to be encouraging it. Would Jesus not tell us your sin is bad for you? Can't Jesus see that? Like, uh, Jesus has this full recognition that our sin is bad, just as he tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Not because by doing so, she'll achieve heaven, but because in her sin, she's actually in this bondage of, of pain. She's, she's, in, she's miserable and she knows it, but maybe she can't see why. Our sin does that to us and we're, it causes insanity so we actually think that it can somehow make us happy. Jesus is all about breaking us free from sin and turning us away and having us not be sinning. But he also recognizes, most importantly, that you're not gonna be able to do it. So he spends his time not trying to get you to fix yourself, but forgiving. And it's from the forgiveness of sin comes the new heart. Again, back to Zacchaeus. He's, he never tells Zacchaeus what to do. He never gives him how, a, a list of ways he can show himself to be truly repentant. He just enters his house, preaches the gospel. Zacchaeus jumps up and starts giving away all of his stuff. And Jesus never had to tell him a thing. So, because if he did, he'd be going at it by way of the law and he doesn't, Jesus doesn't function that way. So he's totally different in his teaching and he's all about forgiving, which is, which is another key reason why he's rejected. Now, let's look at maybe why is Jesus rejected today? Yeah, there's different approaches. So you could say that What's rejected about Jesus is the, um, the exclusivity of Jesus. So we'd say, people, why do people reject Christianity? Um, it's unpopular because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's an unpopular teaching. Maybe that's part of why. Why else might Jesus be rejected today, David? He doesn't accommodate the definitions of the day, the, the, how society How society defines love, he's not accommodating to that. He's 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 unmoving. But so I think that's absolutely right, and that's certainly true. Why people, a lot of people reject Christianity, but that ultimately has us where it's like that's picturing Jesus being rejected ultimately for the law. So I'm careful not to go down that road too much. It ultimately is that's a piece of it because it. Jesus is, is one, he's always being rejected because of the gospel. It's the God, it's the cross that is foolishness. But I don't need the cross if, if I don't have sin, which goes back, that's where the law question comes in for Jesus. Like, if I'm, if I'm looking at the scriptures and I'm seeing all these condemnations, well, that doesn't apply to me. What, either because I'm actually thinking I'm not sinful, or really, I don't buy all this, this God telling me how to live my life, I reject it. So but I'm, I'm careful to push away from that. I want to, we want to make sure Jesus is always being rejected because he's he's forgiving sins, and people just at the end of the day they won't have it. I just I don't I'm not this particular behavior is not sinful. Um, I'm not I'm not that sinful. It's, it seems it seems unloving for God to to try to save me in this way. I want God to save me on my terms. So rejecting the gift, James. So in Jesus' day. These are all Jews. They all acknowledge the law, and so it is different from now because now there is no law, and so Jesus is going to be seen differently because you know everybody knew the law. Yeah, it's true. So now, or or, so James said, um, at at Jesus' day the law was so prevalent that everyone was aware of it, and so Jesus comes in as this clear breath of fresh air in contrast to the law, forgiving sins. Versus in our our context where there seems to be no definition of sin or evil, nothing is wrong, everyone's right in their own eyes, and so that so the gospel is heard quite differently, and so they don't need it at all. I. Now, I would maybe argue that there there is a law, it's um, right. There's a definition of social right, social righteousness. It's not Jesus, it's not the Lord's it's not the Lord's commandments that sets her up right and wrong. But there's still this way of trying to achieve um, righteousness in the eyes of my neighbor in today's context. If I want people to like me, I got to put the right bumper sticker on my car. I got to identify as the right stuff and all the whatever the whatever the argument. I'm trying to, I'm after getting, getting called righteous by my neighbor in some way. And ultimately, Jesus, that's all by way of the law. It's still up to me doing something. And Jesus walks up and shatters it. So we want to make sure Jesus is being rejected as the, as the gospel. So it's the cross that is foolishness. And so we want to make sure the cross is ringing out. So we, I think, I'm be careful how I talk this way, because we talked at length about this, at a Theology on Tap last week, because we're talking the Sixth Commandment and we're making applications to, to like our, our context of, with homosexuality and gender issues and all that, and how we address that community. Um, we, can, we can, if we're not careful, like spend way too much energy trying to make a case that this, this particular sin is sin. And then we're gonna be talking about sin a lot. And that's, it's good, it has its place, because if we don't have sin, then we don't need a savior. And Jesus', Jesus word is quite clear. Um, but at the end of the day, if I'm trying to change someone's heart from a life of allegiance to sin versus a life of following Jesus and being forgiven by him, I'm not gonna do it by smacking him around with more and more law and, and having, a, having a verse, a proof text battle over, over which which scriptures say what to do, and it's all about trying to control the, the person. Whereas Jesus is it's very clear that he's about forgiving sins. So we're, we're, we, wanna be, we wanna be very, very open about this proclamation of the gospel for sinners. And so at two, in the last six weeks, I've had two people quote me back to myself later with something I didn't say. Um, I did not say so, and, and I fortunately I record these Bible studies and put them online. So I'm like, well, you can go back and look. So it, maybe I said it in jest, which is a, the problem with my humor: is I say things seriously, but I'm obviously joking. Hopefully, um, one that people who are divorced go to hell. Did I ever say that? Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said I say except for now. I just did, so I didn't say that. I'm not saying it now. No. So the idea is, I mean, so divorce, so marriage is good. Family is good. Divorce is bad. It tears away at family. I want to uphold family and, and be clear about what is good and what is bad. Um, but obviously sin enters in and does its damage. So what the law does is it diagnoses the problem that when there is divorce, there's a train wreck. There's bodies laying over the place. It's, it's tragic and no one gets out of it clean. And Jesus is the one who brings in his cleanness and his way and his time, and it looks different in every, in every situation. But it's certainly only for sinners that Jesus died. Also, homosexuality. So that most uh, probably in reference to the guy standing outside of a Cubs game with a poster board that says gays are going to hell. That's not true, any more so than Anybody is going to hell. Any, every sinner is going to hell is the proclamation. And we have to be un, like, unwavering on that. Outside of Christ, only hell for everyone. So we don't want to focus too much on one particular sin. Heterosexual sin outside of marriage. Lust of the eye. Uh, all, all this can, is going to hell. If you're going to pick out a particular sin, so you see how we can we maybe push too hard, and now we're talking about the law, and, and we become Pharisees hammering out what is and isn't law, or it isn't isn't right. Or so the Lord is clear. So we want to be we want to be clear. Oh yeah. So so you know the Lord has set up family and, and marriage and sexuality in a particular way, um, so that we would know our sin, so that we would know our Savior, and so we're pushing toward the cross. Jesus want, Jesus dies only for sinners. And just kind of keep circling back to that. Jesus only died for sinners. Um, that's the way, in my, in my opinion, from reading the scriptures, it seems, that's the way in. Rather than trying to waste all of our time in, in conversation capital and trying to prove whether or not a particular thing is, is sinful or not. We're having a Pharisaical conversation that leaves the cross aside. Jesus wants to be rejected for the cross. So we got to get that cross in there. Not haphazardly. So Jesus, he's forgiving sinners for sin. It is sinners and tax collectors that he eats with. So Jesus recognizes sin to be sure. But yes, yeah, So you have to know what sin is. He has to know what a sinner is if he's going to go out of his way to sit with them. Right? They're not wearing name tags, I don't think. So we have to be clear what sin is, but it's all toward forgiveness. Does that, does that make sense? I was kind of swirling around the idea, but we in our in our cultural conversation. We have a tremendous opportunity to to make sure the gospel is ringing out. And I'll tell you, in the in the in the those those who who struggle with particular sins of sexual nature, whether heterosexual or homosexual, they think that that's all we care about is condemning them for that particular sin. It's simply not the case. Now that they and maybe they or the culture has made that so. F- so forefront and forcing it into our faces that we end, up, we, get it, we end up talking about it, but we don't want to make that the main issue. Certainly not the main issue. It's just a sin among all the sins that Jesus has died for. Um, also, since I'm talking about it and I have the floor for one last time until April, August, um, we don't, don't, um, don't let, at least in our own vocabulary, when we're talking with people who are struggling with particular temptations, our sin, our sin does not define us. So a person says, I am gay, just to pick on that easy term. They've, what they've done is, they've, and, the, and this is the, the, the rhetoric of the whole community, is that I've, I've, in, I've like ingested this sin into my identity and it defines me. So when you say, so you say I am I am gay versus I struggle with a particular temptation. You see the difference? Are, does your sin define you? Whatever sin you confess to God, do you walk around calling yourself that particular thing? I am an adulterer. I am a thief. I am a murderer. No. So, I mean, we, we, if, you, I mean if you want to play by the rules that, of the maybe our society, but... No, we're saying we're, we're start, I'm a sinner who struggles with particular sins that I'm repentant of. So I'm fighting against it, and I daily, like a dog returns to his vomit, I, I get suckered back into this in some way, and I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Um, and I want the Lord to set me free. Um, and even, man, there's some sins that you struggle with now that you're probably less willing to admit that they're so sinful. Maybe if you were to rank them, maybe you'd put it lower and maybe you're, you're more willing to return to that one than others. Well, how is that any different than maybe someone who's struggling with a particular sexual confusion and they need to be busted out of it? And they're miserable and they can't figure out why. So what we're trying to do is we want to kind of enter into that conversation with a clear eye toward what is good and what is evil, but keep it out of their identity. If a person says, I am this... Because what they're saying is, if if you're saying Jesus says that this this particular kind of sexuality is sinful, if homosexual is sinful, and I am, I am gay, then there's no way out. My identity to the core is a particular thing, and God rejects me fully. There's no way to get in. Versus, I am a sinner to the core, but this particular sin does not define me. See the difference? So whenever, be careful with your language, so I, 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 me too, I'm trying to always cast it toward those who struggle with particular sins. And then having to kind of like tongue-tied your way through that should be a reminder to all of us that sins of a sexual nature aren't purely homosexual, but they're also within marriages, right? The heterosexual sin. It is only, sinner, it's only for sinners that, that Jesus has died. Um and so he's 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 rejected for one who comes in mercy and not in power that the Pharisees were were expecting and maybe even for us that we kind of want Jesus to come in in power and and fix this world. So if Jesus would just and this is getting into paying taxes to Caesar which you probably not going to have time for today. Um, but so so the, the thought that if we could just get our guy like why doesn't God just force I mean Allegedly, some people were able to kind of rig the ballot system. Can't God? Can't he bypass Russia and get our guy in? So that then everything will fix? Like that's going to solve the problem? That if, so if, if hunger, if God would just set up a, like those COVID testing tents back in 2020 where he could pull in and get your nose swabbed, but instead you pull in and high-five Jesus, and you get healed, and he just kind of keeps it going. There's a steady wave of people coming through to get healed by Jesus, as if Jesus is simply trying to bring about earthly peace and earthly healing. Um, so he, he could have handled things that way. He could have deposed Caesar and put himself on the throne established the best kind of government we could ever imagine, right? He would have done it right, but that wasn't his intent. Now, it doesn't say that we shouldn't care about, we shouldn't care about these things because the law is ultimately for the benefit of whom? Who's the law, especially on the political level, the the government laws, who does that benefit? Us? But really as a Christian we we have an eye toward our neighbors, right? So that the, the, all the rule the laws, the govern the the government and its and its laws are all for the good of our neighbor. And that's what drives us in the in the political arena in our in our when we go to vote uh, and, and make those kind of decisions, we we'll are always have an eye toward what's the benefit of my neighbor, what's going to serve my neighbor best. But also in the back of our minds, we also know that this whole thing is going to be corrupted by sin, and there's no way to get out of this clean. But we want to do the best we can in this broken situation. And that's how the law always has been. Since God gave it the, after the fall into sin, like there's, it's always been messy. It's been riddled with sin all the way through. So Jesus is approached by the by the scribes with this question regarding taxes. Um, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Knowing that if if Jesus comes out and says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's gonna get arrested for inciting rebellion. If he says, do pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll be associated with those who are pro-Rome and he'll kind of cut himself off from their expectation of being a political rebellion messiah. And they're not ready for that yet. And so he answers her question in classic Jesus way with more, with more questions. So he says, show me a denarius whose likeness that the Greek icon, whose iconography and inscription, an epigrapho, the, the writing upon, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They say, Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Beautiful. So what are the things that bear uh, God's image and likeness? Us. He puts his name upon us in holy baptism. We're created in his image. We belong to him. Uh, what kinds of things belong to Caesar? Does anything? Actually, it does only according, though, to, the, to God's ordering of things in the Ten Commandments. Because remember, the government's also God's government. So they they do have the sword. God gave it to them for upholding upholding justice, right? Protecting from evildoers and and, and rewarding good. So there is a way, there's a healthy place for taxation and and to to be able to say there are things that we are to give to Caesar, but are we to render our, our trust to Caesar? No, that belongs to... God. Surrender unto God what is God's. Don't render unto Caesar what is God's. Like fear, love, and trust above all things. That's what we're always tempted to do. We're always tempted to think that somehow God's going to, he's going to become the new Caesar for us. No, there's a clear distinction there. So we want keep that, to keep that clear. So there is a place for Caesar in this world. God is the one who established it, but we, he's not to become our God. Um, Jesus... Let's see. Jesus is not interested in setting up a Christian government, but we are to love our neighbor. He doesn't fight. Notice Jesus doesn't fight against Caesar, but rather he goes and dies for him, even at his own, at his hand, right? So this is the, this is the way that the Lord chooses to save, not with power, but he's, it's through being killed by Caesar that he in fact dies dies for Caesar, and dies for all those who are killing him, even those who nailed him to the cross, many of whom were likely converted later. We know that, like the one guy at the foot of the cross, who says, surely this was the son of God. I think that's in the end of Mark's gospel, I think. All right, so really quickly, the Sadducees, um, so if you ever have a problem distinguishing between Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees deny the resurrection, which makes them... Sad, you see, I never, someone taught me that like five years ago, but like, so helpful. So the, the Sadducees are asking Jesus about marriage in heaven. And she says, no, basically there's no marriage or given a marriage in heaven. The, the Sadducees are unable to comprehend a spiritual realm. All they see is what's in front of them, uh, life and death. When you die, that's the end. When, you lie, when you're alive, you're alive. For Jesus, you can be living and walking and breathing, and yet you are dead, and even though your body seems to stop breathing, you are in fact alive because you have died in Christ. So it's a totally different way of thinking about life and death and eternality with, with Jesus. And so that shatters them trying to trap Jesus with this marriage question. Um, and lastly, oh yeah, so, now God, so verse 38, now he is God of, not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. So just as he is God of Abraham and Isaac, he is God of Dave Bodinstav and of Gedke and all of us who though we die, yet shall we live. Whose son is the Christ? Very briefly, this is from Psalm 110. Uh, how can they say, so he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Basically saying that, the, if, how is David able to say, the Lord said to my Lord, David's laying out how the Messiah, the promised Lord, is going to come from my my offspring in my lineage after me, and yet is the one who's going to be over me. That's only possible if Jesus is born a human in the human flesh, and yet is also God at the same time. So that goes at the the two natures of Christ. And then last, uh, to, to wrap it up, Jesus, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings. He, soon he's going to commend the widow's might, that's coming up. But he says here, beware they, they devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are condemned because they're bigger sinners than everyone else, right? No. What's their problem? This is no gospel, it's all law it's all law. So they're, they're, after, they're after this public acknowledgement of their keeping the law, which is getting at this best seats in the synagogue and the marketplaces. So great, the greater condemnation is from this rejection of the gospel. We have to remember Jesus only dies for? For sinners. And so the greater condemnation comes to those who are outside of Christ, not those who are in Christ. Well so that's sorry for the quick summary there of chapter twenty now and we'll be able to start with Luke twenty-one in um in August. Any any quick last minute questions there? Keith. So I keep going back to verse 15 with the explanation that people may heard that their finger and say, surely not. Were they surprised that the owner was used to be or just somebody outside? Well they're they're mostly upset that they're surely not because they can picture that it's talking about them. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense like uh, that they would say, surely not. It, actually, that's logical, but surely not. Don't, don't let it, don't, we don't wanna die, right? Good, anything else? So if you get it, if you're at early church, stick around for the first 30 seconds of late church. Uh, the, the preschool is gonna be singing, or whoever kids come from preschool today, hopefully more than two. As long as Janetsky's there, we'll be okay. The keys. he'll carry them. Um, they're going to be singing the first stanza of God's Own Child, and they've been singing it every single Wednesday for the entire year, so they know it well. And they'll say, hopefully sing it very loud. It's beautiful to hear them sing that, and then and then skidaddle, right? You hear it from the back. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Hallelujah.